glad you're here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Man, makes me want to go to heaven. Hmm. Romans chapter 12, we are beginning today a series on the church. For the next eight, week, eight weeks, we'll be preaching on the church. My goal, I want to be very upfront here, is not to make you love the church more. I want you to love the head of the church. That's my goal. I want to make you and help you and lead you and direct you to love the head of the church. And then you will love the church properly. That is my goal. And we're excited about this study. So look at this first passage that we have chose to present the teaching of the truth of the church to you. And we will preach down through this today. It reads this way, Romans 12, 1-5. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, very key point, will run, that'll run the context there, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sac- sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove What the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we tremble at the thought that before the foundations of the earth, you thought of us, you knew us. You had a plan to bring together people that you would call your bride. Your precious and chosen holy people. Father, we tremble at that because we know left to ourselves we are sinful people. We are like Isaiah in the presence of God. Our lips are unclean. We tremble. But yet, Lord, with such love In devotion to your glory, you sent your son. He came, he died, he gave us new life. And we are now the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, the very body of Christ. These are powerful terms, Lord. These are not clubs. These are not groups of individuals that come and go. These are your people. The church. And Lord, we have failed you so much when we don't keep your son squarely as the head. So Lord, we want to understand what you have done in a better way. We want to grow in our knowledge. We want to be pierced to the heart of the truth of how you gathered us in your name. So that we will conduct ourselves. That we will... Understand what we're a part of, Lord, in a better way for your glory. So, Lord, as we venture into this study over the next many weeks, Lord, pierce us. Where our hearts are hard, Lord, I pray you would soften them. Where we have put up walls, we pray you would knock them down. Where we have been sinful, we pray you would bring us to repentance. Lord, we want to be your bride. All attention on the groom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses are powerful. You know them. This is not an unknown passage if you're familiar with the scriptures at all. The focus really is down on verses 4 and 5 where it speaks of these many members who are of yet one member of the body of Christ. That is the goal, to try to understand how that works, how, how that functions, and, and what's the motivation behind that. This week I made several phone calls just looking for um, examples 
within life of something that would have individual effort but would contribute to the whole. So I've talked to mechanics about cars. You know, it's no fun driving a car. The tire goes out. The thing just doesn't go anymore. Um, you know, some of those. But um, I'm going to save the body for next week as I speak on, again on 1 Corinthians 12. But I talked to one of my dear friends, uh, Todd Freitas, this week. And he is a contractor builder. And I said, Todd, tell me about the house building process. It was very interesting. I've built a little bit of housing but not done it very well or for very long or, or for an income. And Todd said, you know, it's pretty exciting when you sit and think about the whole thing in the relationship to church. We had this amazing conversation. And he said, look, you can't even build till the soil's right. What are you going to build on? Soil that's not been tested and compacted? Do you want your house to sink later? And, he, and I just let him go. And he's, he's telling me all this stuff. He says, there's grading and inspections all before we even put a form down. So that house will stand. And then he said, the underground has to go in first. You've got to have the underground. got to get electrical and plumbing and stuff in there before the foundation goes down. That has to be there. And then he says, the foundation key, as we would know, we'll come to that, back to that point in just a minute. From there, he says, we begin to frame. We roll trusses. We sheet. We begin to put windows and doors in and then siding and roofing. And the house is now watertight. From there, we start to bring in subs, plumbing, and electrical, HVAC, the heating, venting, and air conditioning groups, insulation, sheetrock, and eventually into finished products, cabinets, doors, trim, all that stuff. And really, when it's done, it's called what? A house, a home. We don't say, well, I live in an electrical, plums, sheetrock building with a roof on it over there. Well, that's my house. And I thought about this. Which do you and I not want a part of this? Anybody want to throw out the plumbing? Are you ready to go back to the little outhouse? I don't know. Has anybody in here ever had a house that didn't have plumbing in it? Did anybody? A few of you? There's a few. There's a few of us that go back and lived in some places that didn't have it. We were glad for our plumbing, I would imagine, right? Um, I lived in a few ranch houses that didn't have plumbing. Would you want to go away from electricity? I mean, sometimes we think about it, it'd be kind of cool for, you know, when the lights go out, you know, electricity goes out. But as you think about this, think about this. Which do you not want part of this whole? When you pay an exorbitant amount for a house in California, and if you talk to anybody in the Midwest, they kind of laugh at us like, really? Do you own part of the state? (laughs) Which do you want to leave out? See, you know where I'm going with this. Many members... One body. And we look at this truth, and it's in so many ways. Next week, we'll see Paul masterfully unveil it as the body. The physical body. Eyes, ears, nose, kidneys, heart, lungs. Which do you want to go without? See, when the church begins to realize that there is diversity working in unity for the glory of Christ, great things start to happen. God gifts you and I uniquely so that he brings together a group of people who focus their attention on Christ and move together as one. And then he says, you're my bride. You are my body. You're my church. So you start to think about this, you go, wow, where do I fit in? Am I part of this Many members that brings a solidarity to focus on what we're doing here. As we go through this series, one of the things that just comes glaring out, it'll come through in your community groups as well, is that the church has probably, down through the ages, particularly um, as we see it in America, has lost its view of what it really is. Most time, church is, for many people, what they can receive out of it. Now, we are not against caring for people when they come to church. In fact, that's, we work very hard at that. We train teachers and children and ushers and deacons and people. That, can't, we, we, that is part of what we do. We want to care for people when they come. But this pervasive thinking in our minds that has somehow worked out to what does a church have to offer me? And I'll just keep bouncing until I find one. 
And then eventually I'll probably not like what they're doing either. See, we want to change that through this series. We, we want to say, Lord, wait a minute. What am I a part of? What, what do I bring? What is the purpose of all that you have sent me here to do? So let me give you a few thoughts down through, particularly the first three verses. The solidarity connection in the diversity of the body of Christ. There is a solidary connection that you begin to see in this verse. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore I, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. We'll stop right there. Now, often when you come to a text and you find a chapter heading that starts with the word therefore, you've got to go, hmm, what's there for? Well, you know, if you know your book of the Bible here in Romans, Paul has launched into this teaching of Romans 9 through 11 on his biblical, his God-given understanding of God's sovereignty, particularly in drawing Israel back. He has not left Israel. He has given uh, his grace and mercy to the church. He is going to come back and gather a remnant out of them. And he's very, very clear in it. And it's very deep. And there's terms given in 9 through 11 that make you scratch your head a little bit on how deep God's sovereignty actually goes. And so he ends up, chapter 11, verse 33, with these words. Look at this. Oh, the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. After he gets done talking about these issues that we just kind of boggle our mind as he, as he has control over everything, good, evil, saved, unsaved, he, 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 there's nothing that he does not touch in his sovereignty. Paul finally winds up at the end of it just says this. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. And if you spend time with God at all, and you read his word, you will come away and go, Lord, I, I can't get to the bottom of you. And he uses this word to unfathom. You, you know that word. It was an old term. They would come into a harbor or into a cove and they would drop and, uh, a weight and they would say 20 fathoms and 15 and, and 5. And they knew they were getting close to a reef where they would dock and then come in on boats. It was, it was a term that they used over and over. This is saying, I can't find the bottom of God. He's almighty. And who are we, as he said earlier in this chapter, who is the clay to say, the lump to say to the, to the designer, this is what I want of you. The perfect, almighty designer. And so Paul just says, oh, the depths. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can become his counselor? Simply put, what are you going to tell him that he doesn't know? Man demands things of God. They shake their fist at God because they don't like what he does or what he has set up and what he is doing. Who has, who has the right to counsel him? Verse 35, or who has first given to him that, that it might be paid back to them again? Literally, he's not obligated, is what Paul's saying. It is out of His mercy He operates, out of His grace that He operates. And that's what we feel. We sing a song, You are good, Lord, you are good. That song comes right out of Romans chapter 2, verse 14, verse 15. It is out of the kind, actually verse 4, out of the kindness of, of God that He draws us. The goodness of God. And you say, when you read these verses, you say, Oh Lord, you don't owe me a thing. But yet, but yet you gave me mercy. And you worship him and, and he finally ends up the verse this way. Look at verse 36. And from him, directional, and through him, he is the cause of it. And to him all, all are all things. So every direction, every sense of understanding, all comes either from him or through him or in him or to him. All things. And Paul can't say anything more, so he finally just says this, To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's just overwhelmed with the knowledge of a sovereign God. The more we get our, our minds and we wrestle with the sovereignty of God and we bow the knee to him, I promise you will grow. The more you fight it, 
the more he becomes difficult to you. So there's the therefore that he has set up here. He is giving us a background and he launches into believers this way. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, I urge you. He is calling out to the family of God. This brethren is not like the brethren that he uses the same word in context in 9 through 11, speaking of his brethren, meaning the nation of Israel. Here, now he turns his attention to the church. To those who are family members. I love the term brethren. I have, I have good friends in the brethren church. Um, and, and they don't ever greet each other without calling each other brother and sister. And I pick that up through the years. And I often refer to you as, you know, have a great day sister. Or have a good day brother. It's good to see you. Because I view you as family. You, you're my family. You have been brought into the family of God. And you're my brothers and sisters. And we together are the family of God Adopted in His grace, adopted in His mercy, we sit now together in the presence, in, in the position of Christ. We are, he looks at us that way. And so there's a love that goes out for one another, and, and Paul has this. Notice this term, urge. It is a unique term that Paul uses in his epistles, and is this idea of pleading, asserting, exhorting. He wants us to get this. He thinks this is so important. Do you think Paul had fears of where the church may go? I think he did. I think he had fears of of the church becoming self-centered and man-centered. He writes many things towards those things. So he's urging them. I've been reading a series by a guy on a blog of, of all the, uh, the councils that went down in the early centuries of the church. And they would set these councils up because groups would arise and, and they would deny the deity of Jesus Christ or deny his dual nature of fully God and fully man. And the church was crumbling on its theology and they'd bring these councils together and men would work through this to hold up Christ and say, no, he is God. And I think Paul knew that was coming and so he urged believers, he urged the family of God to listen and to, to hear the word of God and to be active body of Jesus Christ. See, this brethren is a special term for the elect. It's those who experience mercy get this term. Only the redeemed make up the true body of Christ. See, the natural man, he can't get this. Natural men, meaning unsaved, men who have not bent the knee to Jesus Christ, who have not had their sins forgiven, things like this don't make sense to them. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Just turn over one book to your right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14. A whole study here on the Spirit of God. But, but he brings in what he calls the natural man. This is the man that's not saved. Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Notice this. It says they're foolish to him. You have experienced, if you've shared Jesus with anybody who said, I don't need your, I'm not a sinner. This is something for somebody else. You don't know who I am. And maybe he was nice and kind and she didn't kick you or something, but it shows that they're natural. They're so foolish to the need of a Savior. They reject Jesus. The Spirit of God isn't there to shine the light of Christ on their lives. And notice the verse says, He cannot understand them and they are spiritually appraised. So I want to bring you back to Romans 12 and say, Look, he's talking to, the, to those who have been appraised, to those who have been valued by God and understood that we are saved individuals. Notice he makes the whole statement. This is a key phrase to this whole text. All the way down through here is this statement by the mercies of God. And mercy is that solidary connection in the diversity of the body of Christ. If you're a true follower of Christ, you have in common with the entire church the fact that you have received mercy. You have that in common. You may be very different. You, you may have a great voice. You may not have a great verse. You may be able to teach. You may be able to give more. You may be able to serve in different ways. But the one thing that we all have is we've received mercy. It is a beautiful reminder of, of that, that God has showered us with things we do not deserve. We have mercy. 
And as you look at one another and you shake hands after we're done here, you are most likely shaking hands with somebody God said, I'm giving you mercy. You didn't have mercy. You were not a people before, but now I'm giving you mercy and I'm giving you my name. That, see that's how special this is? This is, not, this is not a country club. It's not Elks Lodge or Moose Lodge. Or, it, this isn't something that you get something back because I paid my dues. You have been granted by the Almighty to receive mercy and be brought into the full. It's fascinating. When you start to think about this, this is what Romans teaches all the way through. This mercy is what we understand, the power of our salvation. Dead men now are alive. Those who are blind see. Lost are now found. God has demonstrated His kindness and His love towards us, the Bible says in Romans 5. He has granted us forgiveness and freedom from our sins. Christ appeased the Father. So when we get the word propitiation, he's, the Father's wrath was upon us. I think Ted pointed that out last week in Ephesians chapter 2. God's wrath was on us and Jesus said, I'll appease that wrath for Scott, for you. We've been reconciled. I love the word reconciled. The Greek word means, to me, it means that our position has been changed. I love that word. Scott, Dead lifeless towards God. I've changed your position. You are now alive. You are my son. I will never remove my love from you again. Ah, he reconciled me. Do you love that word? Fall in love with these truths. He's justified us. means he declared us righteous. He's conforming us into the image of his son. He's taken sinners and he's going to make us like Jesus, free of sin. And when we see him, John says, we'll be like him. He has given us divine sonship. Who do you belong to? Well, I'm the son of Don Menez and Beverly Menez live in Redding, California. But ultimately, I'm a son of the king. I'm a son of the king. He's given me that. He has given us his spirit. Just think about that. This is what makes the church so unique. Within each one of us who are truly saved, he takes his own spirit and places it within us to seal us, mark us, and we can never be lost. Spirit of God. And spirit, we get the word flame from it, bright light. It illuminates Jesus Christ in our life. But think about this. In a dark world, wherever Christ has put his spirit into someone, there is a light there. So picture a dark map of the United States. It should be pretty bright and holster. Right? Are we shining Jesus? Are we letting the Spirit do His work? Romans says He's poured out the love of God into our hearts. He has placed within us and sealed us with His Spirit. He has granted us faith, peace, hope, honor, and a gift to share in His glory. This is the soul-saving mercy that drives a Christ-loving, Christ-serving, Christ-exalting members of the body of Christ. This is what drives us. This is what fuels us. This is why we're here this morning. Maybe, and maybe, and I'm not, we're not condemned. Please don't take this way if you came for the other, some other reason. I really like Robert's music. But we want you to learn that church is not built around man. If it is, we're in trouble. I can promise you from a pastor standpoint, I can speak for the other pastors, we can't meet all your needs. We cannot meet them all. It's impossible. Your needs are so diverse, there's no way we can get it. But you know who can? Jesus can. So the best thing shepherds do, although we care for you, we'll feed you if you're hungry, and we'll minister to you and counsel you and, and help you, but the best thing we do is we say, there he is. Come on, I'll walk with you to him. That's what we do. And so the body of Christ is this unique group of people individually showered on mercy, collectively coming together and expressing that mercy in a daily basis. Does that make sense? The church is not a country club. It is the redeemed of God, exalting Jesus. Second thought, the individual bodies constitute a greater body of Christ. The individual bodies constitute a greater body of Christ. Look at the rest of it. Verse 1, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
individually, we offer our lives, our bodies as living, holy sacrifices to God, which Paul in this verse calls it spiritual worship. But as we individually offer our lives, each one of us, as worship to the Lord, we collectively resemble the body of Christ. This is what he's trying to tell us. Our first point is based on mercy. It's gripped our soul. But now mercy affects us physically. So we talked about mercy just affecting the way we see the church, the way we see Christ, the way we worship him. Now mercy affects us physically. It physically gets a hold of us. We're now part of something greater in a spiritual way, in a physical way. He uses the word body here. And here the word is to represent our physical bodies before the Lord. It's not, it's not some metaphor for something else. It is a physical term. This too is done collectively uh, to glorify the Lord. But the interesting word, the verb here, it says to present. Does your Bible say that, something like that? To present your bodies. Now, um, paristomai is the word there and literally has the idea, a good translation is to present, but it has the idea of to put at someone else's disposal. That's the idea of the word. It was used of the priest. They were used of God to bring sacrifices to him. We take our bodies and we present them for the Lord and we say, look, I know it's not much, but it's yours. And just think about that. So we work through the room here. And we all begin to say, Lord, not only have you captured my soul by your mercy, you have captured this physical body. It wants to worship you. It wants, it longs. It doesn't always do it, Lord, if I'm honest. But it longs, it wants to worship you and wants to live for you. It actually wants to live in your ways, not mine. I want to offer that. And so the physical body now is the house of the soul. So think about that. God has saved our souls. This physical body houses that soul. And though our souls are cleansed and ready for eternity, so if you die today, your soul has been saved, you will instantly be in the presence of God, the body still deals with sin. So we get our term, and I've used this many times, this unredeemed humanness about us. Let me show you how we see that. Look at Romans 6. Go back few chapters. Romans 6, verse 12. We understand that sin, we wrestle with the body, which is, incorporates the flesh, which incorporates sin. And you can start to see this, how Paul illustrates this. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin, where? Reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. Years ago, I took some horses back in my cowboy days, took some horses down to East L.A., um, right down where all the riots and Rodney King and all that went down. I had a good friend who had a church down there, and um, he said, no, I'd love for you to bring horses down someday. My kids have never seen them except with cops on them. And I said, I'd love to bring them down. So we came down there, and I preached this text all the way down through Romans 6, sitting on my horse, and, of course, it had, it had a bit in it and reins, and I would spin this horse around. And I would tell these group, this massive group that assembled on a corner street, that, look, this is like sin. It controls you. I can pull it this way, and it pulls you around. I can pull it this way, and round comes it. See, that's what sin does with us. It's there. It's present and it wants you to obey its lust. Verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why? Well, because you've, you need to present them to God, the verse says, as those alive from the dead. From members of instruments of unrighteousness to God. For sin shall not, notice this, shall not be master over you. You've been saved. For you're not under the law, you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? But, but under grace, may it never be. So there's this understanding that sin, we struggle with sin in our body. Now we have to be careful here. There's a big war that went on early in the church and John addresses it in 1 John. People would say, oh, well, my soul is saved, so whatever I do in my body doesn't mean anything. And they would disconnect the two. Paul's saying, no way. You've received mercy, it should affect the way you live. It should affect the choices you make, where you take the temple. What you allow in the temple. Hey, I'm in here, Jesus says. Spirit of God, I'm in here. 
And so sin is there is wrestling. So I wrote in my notes, our, our bodies incorporate our humanness. Our humanness incorporates our flesh. Our flesh incorporates our sin. That's where the battle is. Look, one, one chapter over, Romans chapter 7. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul's letting us into the spiritual wrestle that every man, woman, and child has who's a believer, wrestling with sin, trying to obey the Spirit of God, trying to obey the Word of God, trying to love Christ, but yet there's a wrestling going on. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For the willingness is present in me, but doing of good is not. So there's this body that's in me that just, why do I do these things? Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but the practice, the very evil that I do not want. Does anybody understand that verse besides me? Please tell me you do. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to be the best husband. I want to be the best father. I want to be the best pastor. I want to serve you, Lord. Five minutes later, my mind's somewhere it shouldn't be. What happened? Why am I selfish? There's a wrestling going on. There's this battle be- between my soul and my body. And, and, the, and who's going to rule here? Who's going to get the th- heart? Who's going to get the throne? Paul's letting us in on this. Verse 20, but I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. He sees what the culprit is. The culprit is sin. Verse 21, I find then a principle that is evil in present in me and the one who wants to do good. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So he says, look, I understand truth. And there's this war between my understanding of what God has done with me and my physical desires. And when he's all done with this, verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death. How am I going to get over this, Lord? How am I going to learn to live for you? And then he gives the answer in verse 25, and we should all be very thankful for this verse. Because if this verse wasn't in the scriptures, we'd probably be um, very legalistic. But verse 25 says this, Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. That is the answer. It is the praise of God. That he has both set you free eternally from your sins. He's forgiven them. And he can give you victory over things. And he sees that as it. And so this is us wrestling with our flesh. And as you turn back to chapter 12, Paul says this body needs to now be offered to the Lord. Given to him. Just a side note. As I thought about this, I said, Lord, it can be discouraging for us to talk about these things. Because... Some of these are lifetime wrestles for us. We wrestle with this. But there's so many verses that the Bible says this, that we're not citizens of heaven. We eagerly await Savior who will transform the body. And someday we will have victory over these things. But we press on. And that's why he's saying, I urge you to do this. But while we wait for this redemption of our unredeemed humanness, we strive by the strength of the Spirit to offer our bodies as living, holy sacrifices. Some real key words there, briefly. Living. You got a pulse? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. We are not dead. We don't worship dead gods. We don't have a dead church service. We're not involved in dead works for salvation. We are alive. And so we live this life, living it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this word holy, that means set apart from sin. That is a statement given to God. Hagias is the word. It is set apart from evil. And so Paul's saying, look, strive by the Spirit's help with the, with the motivation of mercy to offer your body as living sacrifices. See, many things the church does down through the ages that they call worship are often just mere outward religious acts. Some of the greatest worship goes on in a truck while a man reads his Bible at his lunch break. Just him and God. His Bible out in front of him, being honest about who he is. A passionate need for God to continue to help him. 
Lord, I come. We sing that song. I need thee. See, that's absolutely pure worship to the Lord. We say, well, Lord, you need me. If I'm not here, what would happen? You know, we, we come off in that way thinking that there's something that we have. Pure worship is in this fact, Lord, I want to be a living, holy sacrifice to you. Just that statement, Lord, I desire that. There's a war within me, Lord, but you know, I want you to know today, Lord, I desire to worship you. Oh, that's sweet worship to God. And that can be done on Monday morning on the side of your bed or Friday afternoon on the way home on a commute. See, that's worship. And that's what the Lord's after. The American church has lost this in many circumstances. The goal of church is what I can get out of it. But that's not what the Bible is teaching here. We offer ourselves, Christ, we are at your disposal now. Take us, use us for your glory. Third thought, transform the minds, transformed minds in the body of Christ collectively pursue the will of God. Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we've all read these verses and we've studied them before. But there are some truths when we start to think about the church. And we start to think about this many members in one, one body. How does the many members collectively pursue the will of God? Tonight I'm going to share the direction of the church and where, where we're going and what we see God doing. And, and how we can continue to find that and understand the will of God. It's found when we, we as individuals, individual persons... Conform our mind, transform our mind to the things of God. And it happens in, in an individual way before it ever can happen collectively. So if the church is scattered in its transforming of its mind, and, and it's going to be hard for the church to find footing for direction. But when we individually all say, Lord, I'm going to commit to you, to know you, to understand you, to grasp you, to learn of you. When we individually do that, the church finds footing and goes. Now, this word conform, do not be conformed to this world. It's an interesting word. It's, it's actually a passive imperative. So it has the idea of meaning that um, let, don't let something besides the gospel and mercy conform you. Don't let something outside conform you, passive. Don't submit to something other than the truth of God's word. In the English, it's an interesting word. We get the word masquerade from it. So... We put on our little masquerade thing, and we're not really of the world, but we want to be some days. So we pick up that masquerade, and we walk around, and we act godless at times. He says, don't masquerade as something you're not. I did not save you to fall in love with the world, to be gripped by its false truths, to be gripped by its lies. Drop the mask. Be honest. That's what he's after. There's, there's this understanding of this, this, this. The word world here is an interesting world to help you understand it just a little bit. It's not cosmos, not creative world. It's aeon, which is the age. And you could really read it, and maybe some of the translations say this, but do not be, trans, uh, be, not be conformed to this age, to this time, to this, this period, this way the world thinks. There's an age, and there is one who rules in this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4. Even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, aeon, age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. You want to get blinded towards God? Be attracted to the world. And pretty soon the things of God become dimmer. They're not as bright to you. They're not as exciting. And it's a test we all can go through in our lives. Lord... I am not excited about you. I'm so wound up about health care and whatever else. And it almost said something I didn't want to say. <laughs> we start to chase things that we go, where am I going with this, Lord? I don't have a desire for you today. Oh, I know where my desires are. They're earthly. The earthly things, which you and I have to take care of, become greater than the spiritual things of God. He says, look, 
Don't be conformed to these. Listen to this verse. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God. That's a position. That's a preposition denotes a position. We know that we are of God. And that the world lies, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Be careful. When Jesus, when he takes him up at the temple and says in the kingdoms of the world and says, look, I'll give you these if you bow down to me. And people are bothered by that. I said, don't be bothered by it. He owns the world. It belongs to him. When Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell into his grasp. God has saved you out of the world. It's true. And, he, and, he says, and John says, look, we're of God. The rest of the world lies in the power of the evil one. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me real quick. I just want you to understand this age that we live in. See if there's anything in there that maybe you, can, you struggle with. Probably not all of this if you're saved, but there's probably some stuff you and I struggle in here. This is the age, this is the world we live in. Verse 2, 2 Timothy 3, 2. For men will be lovers of self. I can do that every once in a while. I'm a self-preservationist at times. Don't trust God that he's going to see me through something. I could do that. Lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Oh, kids, how'd that one get in there? Ooh. Ungrateful. Oh, man. That's, that hits us, man. Have you ever been ungrateful? Ungrateful to your spouse? Ungrateful to the person who hired you and you don't like them anymore or her anymore? Unholy, that just means I've chosen to have evil in my life and not deal with it. Unloving, unreconcilable. You won't solve an issue before between somebody. Malice gossips, destructive in your speech is what that means. Without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of God. Look at me. Although dying in the power. The Bible says avoid such people. See, that's an age. So it's the age of the world. You could, you could put that on the 6 o'clock news, couldn't you, that statement right there. And you could go through article after article as they go through, or, or event after event, and you could see those things in there. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this age. He says, be transformed. Metamorphous is the word we get from that. It means to submit or allow the glory of God to transform you. you know, what do you mean by that? When we sing a song, are you in awe of God? Maybe you're one here that just worship just impacts you. Preaching really impacts you. But is that true on Monday? I had a Sunday school teacher that I was raised under. We'd say some great answer like Jesus, you know. And he would always, I remember him tossing his chalk you know, the old chalkboards. And he would say, yeah, that's a good answer on Sunday morning, but what about Monday morning? Do you still worship on Monday morning? See, he's, he was challenging us to say, are you really being transformed, or is this a show? Do you submit to the glory of the Lord? Lord, I submit to you on Sunday morning when I'm, when I'm amazed at you in that song we sang, and that sermon we heard, that verse that just gripped me in the sermon. I want to be amazed Monday with all the trials of it. It's hard. These are things we must work at. So how does a young man keep his way pure? Psalms 19 says, 119, 9-11 says, By keeping according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you, the writer said. Do not let me wander from your commandments. We sang one of my favorite sing, so, uh, hymns today. I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, I, I resonate with Robert Robinson. There, there is a proneness to, to, to venture away from God. But then the psalmist turns and says, Your word I have stored, treasure, hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. See, that's what he's talking about. 
And you think about this now as we turn back to our text and we think church-wide, we begin to realize that when you and I individually transform our mind daily, repetitiously, learning to put our minds, our hearts into the Word of God, collectively great things happen. And you see it like this. When things of the world hit the church, a church that is studied in the Word will know how to react. They'll know how to handle it. They'll know how to stand firm and lean into the winds of ungodliness. They'll learn how to do that. Because they're trained, they've individually trained their minds to be transformed by the Word of God. And people like this will say, well, Pastor, what does the Bible say? Let's do that. Okay, we're going to do that. That's where transformation starts to take place. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. It is the word for lavish, unabundance. I had a cowboy I used to work with was a dear believer and a friend. And I was young, young preacher, and he was in our church. And we'd be cowboying, and, and we'd come up with other cowboys. And, 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 and I remember watching him do this. They would make some statement that was going on in the world or their life. And he'd always say this, you know, the Bible says, and he quotes some verse. And then a while later, we'd be with some other group, and he would say, you know, the Bible says, and I thought, that man knows God's word. And he was kind, he wasn't derogatory. He just said, the Bible says. Hey, God's word says this. Hey, I got a verse that I can give to you. See, when we push for Bible reading, that's just because, you know, we got extra paper, that we got some ink that we need to get on it. (laughs) We want you to read God's word. We really, really do. Because it transforms our mind. And we, us, the church, when our lives are transformed by the Word of God individually, we corporately start to move with His will. In fact, the Bible says here we'll start to understand, we'll prove what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect will. If I had a dollar for anybody, everybody that ever asked me, God, Scott, I don't know what the, God's will is for me. Read your Bible. And obey Him. I've given that answer so many times. Where in your life are you not obeying Him? Where in your life you're not applying the Scriptures? You want to know what God has for you? You're not going to find it in sin. You're just not going to find it. You're going to stumble around and, you know, oh God, help me. Why I do this evil over here? No, no. Read His Word. Obey Him. He, I told him the other day, He's not trying to do a nut and shell game with you. Okay, <laughs> what's my will for you today? That's not God. He's like, here's the shell, it's under this one. Right here. Be transformed, church. Let, us, let the word of God change us. Last thought, quickly. For single, singleness in faith and diversity in gifts constitutes the body of Christ. And we'll talk more about this in time, but... Thinking more highly of yourself in verse 3 will not bring you to the glory of Christ. It will not bring the church to a, to a singleness, a corporate understanding of what our role is. Paul urges here, for through the grace given to me, that's both salvation and probably his apostleship that he says this, I say to you, among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as with sound judgment. Have your mind transformed. That's what gives us sound judgment. Have a right view of yourself. In biblical counseling, the thing we work hard at is we, when we biblical counsel with people is to help them get a correct view, biblical view of who they are and who the Lord is. That takes a tremendous amount of work. Because I know how hard it is in my own life to get a good view of Scott. Right? Because we, we have a higher view of ourselves sometimes than we ought to. So we learn to have a biblical view of ourselves. And notice that Paul says this is grace that does this. And then this phrase, and I'll end with this, is this measure of faith. I struggled with this statement for a long time through the years. And I think I finally have landed in what I believe it to be. For, uh, for years I heard people come in to me and say, well, pastor, I just can't serve the way you want me to serve. I, I, I don't have that kind of measure of faith. Well, where are they getting that from? And, and it always was sense that, well, I don't have a faith like you, so I can't do this. 
I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. I think this measure of faith is this common faith given to believers. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The whole syntax of that structure and that that sentence there is saying that God gives you grace and faith. They are a gift from God. So I think this is what the Bible is saying here. God has allotted each a measure of faith. He's allotted his children faith. He's given you faith so that you can realize that you're part of something bigger. You're more than just you. You're more than what you can get from the church. You're part of a functioning church that walks, talks, moves along, and brings glory to the Lord. And he wants you to see that. And so you are a part of something much bigger. So I encourage you. How can you experience the church the way God intended. And we keep putting offers out. In fact, I'm starting a community group. Gina said last night, was anybody going to come? I don't know. We're going to be ready. I'm after people who aren't in a community group, who have coffee and tea on and Bibles ready. But we want you to do that. We want you to see what God is doing. We want you to grow. We want you to fall in love with the Savior. So the body of Christ that meets at Grace Bible Church on the corner of 6th and Monterey is a church that loves its Savior. And we're a bunch of people that God needed to save, and He needs to constantly sanctify us and help us get things right and learn to love Him. But we're a bunch of people that are submitting to Him. And then He'll say, I got something for you guys. I want to show my glory through you. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We, we get overwhelmed by this passage. We... We could dig in it all day long. We could, we could spend all evening in it, Lord, that's so rich. But yet, at the same, we realize that there, there's a purpose to this. Paul knew that he wanted the church to see that they were a part of something greater. They had received mercy. And they were now to offer oneself to God. To give their lives Moms and dads loving each other. Husbands and wives picturing Christ in the church. Parenting children to love the Lord Jesus. Church members seeking Christ's glory and the way they treat one another. So Lord, we know that there's a bigger picture here. He's, Paul's trying to unveil us what the picture of the church looks like. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. We want to walk with you. We want to be a church that you say, I want to use Grace Bible Church both in Hollister and around the world. So Lord, conform us, transform us, bring us to that knowledge, Lord. We'll give you all the credit, Lord. And when we try to rob any, Lord, we would ask that you would discipline us for that. Because we want you to get all the glory. Hear our last song to you in worship. Give us strength as we go out into this world that we would not be conformed to it but we'd be transformed by your word in Jesus' name. Amen.